doing that. So I want this to be interactive. When I ask a question or something, it's not like um, rhetorical. It's uh, I probably want some input, all right? And it's even okay if you're wrong. That's, that's not, no problem, okay? Uh, so we're going to look at this tonight. What is a deacon? That's kind of our question this evening. And I'm going to write some things on the screen here that uh, should be of help to us. Well, if you wanted to answer that question, right, what is a deacon, uh, where would you start? Where would you begin? Uh, for some of you, maybe you would do this. You would take your Bible, and in the back of your Bible, something called a concordance. How many of you knew that? Concordance, you know what that is. It lists a number of words that show up in the Bible, and uh, it, it tells you where you can find all those words. So maybe your concordance is like mine, and you would look in the back and start flipping through it, and you would look up the word deacon. And if you did that, and uh, it was a good concordance that you were consulting out of the, the uh, uh, primarily the translation that we use, the English Standard Version, you would find that the word deacon occurs six times in the New Testament, but really only in two passages. And so you would go and look those up, and it might tell you a little bit about what a deacon is, but it really wouldn't give you the whole picture or the full story. And so you'd actually have to find what is the underlying word, uh, the Greek word that's being translated as deacon. And if you did that, you would come up with a lot of other references where that word occurs in the New Testament. This would help you to define the term uh, deacon. If you did that, you would found that, that that word occurs as a noun 31 times in the New Testament and its verb form 38 times. So you have a lot of references to this. And oftentimes when you're reading your Bible, it, it is translated not as deacon, but as a different word. There are two typically by which it's translated. And I'll show those to you. Um, let's look at a passage here, Mark 10. This is on the screen for you. You can look it up in your Bible if you'd like. Mark 10, 42, 45, and we're told that Jesus called to them, or called them to him, these are his disciples, and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you were to read that passage of Scripture, what word do you think actually translates this underlying word deacon? Yeah, it's this word right here, servant. In fact, it occurs here too. To be served, that's in its verb form. And to serve, right? There is another word for servant in this passage or in this text, uh, but it's translated differently appropriately. It's this word slave, right? So in the, in the New Testament world, you had two kinds of servants. You had one, the servant, the diakonos is the underlying word. And that was like, you would think of it like the butler, it's somebody who had a position of service, and they would serve in a variety of ways, but, but they would do so. They were at someone's beck and call. Uh, 
but then you had the, the term slave, and that was someone that really had no standing whatsoever. Uh, they were entirely bound to the will of their master. And so Jesus says, actually, the lowest position, the slave, really is the highest one in God's kingdom. And that's the point of this passage. But our point tonight is this. If you look at this term in the New Testament, the term uh, for deacon, uh, it's often translated as servant, or it's often translated another way, and that would be minister or ministry, to minister to somebody, right? So if you had to give a term for the definition of deacon, it's, it's somebody who serves, it's somebody who ministers, okay? Well, when you read your New Testament, here's a question for us. Who does this? Who serves? Who ministers? In other words, we take this word and say, who are the people doing this? And let me just take you through this exercise tonight, all right? Here's where this word occurs. Romans chapter 13. It says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant, here's our word, servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is, again, the servant of God, and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. Who is serving here? Who's this referring to? Who are these people? Rulers, we would say, people with political position, people with protective authority in our communities. Uh, these are people who, according to the Bible in Romans 13, they are our servants, and the underlying word is they are deaconing, right? They're serving. Well, how do they serve? Well, in this sense, it, they should serve to protect and honor what is good and to be a deterrent to those who would do what is wrong. All right? So who serves? We could say governing officials, uh, police officers, uh, firefighters serve, right? In this kind of idea. All right, who else serves? Romans 15 says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant, and he became a servant to the circumcised, that's Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So who else serves or deacons? So you can say it. Christ. Jesus came, and he <coughs> served in this way. Okay? So he ministered in this way, Right? Who else? 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. All right? Who are these people? Who's this guy? Saul of Tarsus. That's an apostle, right? Chosen by Christ. That's an apostle. Who's this guy? He's not an apostle, but we would know him in the New Testament. He was a preacher, um, and he preached God's word. In fact, we're told that he was a, a powerful preacher, a bit misguided at one point and had to be instructed a little bit. But 
Um, he was a powerful preacher. And so when it comes to deaconing or serving, you have that word used of apostles and pastors, that they are said to be servants uh, through whom people believe. All right? Who else serves? Well, we're told in 2 Corinthians 11, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Who are these servants? Who are they serving? Satan. We, we would call these false teachers. And that's the point that Paul's making in this passage. He says there are people who disguise themselves as true servants of God, but they're actually doing Satan's service. They're false teachers. Okay? But this term is used of them. They serve, they deacon, as it were, Satan, and they're serving him. All right, who else serves? Mark 15 says this, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger of Joseph and Salome, when he was in Galilee, the he there speaking of Jesus, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem, all right? Where's our word deacon here? Ministered, and who is ministering here? Yeah, the context here is ladies, right? These are all ladies, and they ministered to our Lord's earthly needs while he was on earth. This is actually at the crucifixion, and it's recalling that, that, that these ladies deaconed or served in this way. Okay? Here's another one, maybe one more. Who serves? We're told in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits, and here's our word, deaconing, ministering spirits, sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Do you know who this is talking about? It's talking about angels, angelic company, that they serve. Angels deacon, whatever deaconing is, this word, angels do it as well. Okay? So you go through that little exercise, you kind of identify who it is that does this kind of deaconing, this word, and what do you come up with? You come up with this. Who serves? Well, all kinds of people serve in the Bible, right? Rulers, apostles, ladies, uh, false teachers, angels. Maybe we, we wouldn't put them in the people category, but you understand. It's, it's all kinds of people do this. Well... When you look further at this word, we ask this question. Well, what is, what is this service that they're doing? What is actually being, being served or, or how are they doing this? A couple of passages here. Uh, I want us to note um, Luke chapter 4. And we're told this in Luke chapter 4, verse 38. We're told... Of Jesus, and he arose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother in law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. 
And he, that is Jesus, stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Okay? Serve them. <clears throat> what is she doing here? There's a lady who's fallen quite ill, and they ask Jesus, can you do anything? This is Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and he raises her up, and immediately after that, we're told that she served them. We're not told explicitly, but what do you think she's doing? What is she serving? Probably food, maybe making them more comfortable. Um, you know, when I read this passage, uh, I think of my own mother-in-law, because I think this is exactly what she would do, right? She does it even when she doesn't feel good, but but if she were raised up, like, this is what she would do. She would immediately be thinking, okay, who can I feed? Or, you know, who can I help? And, and I think that's the idea here. You have Simon Peter, his mother, or his, his mother-in-law, and the way that she serves is in a very physical, tangible way. She's, she's trying to meet physical needs and make people comfortable. This is just kind of in her nature. And it comes out immediately once she's restored. Okay? So what is she serving? Physical, tangible needs. A meal, probably. What about this? What else is served? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're told this. Uh, and not only that, we're jumping right into a context, but he has been appointed by the churches. The he here refers to, we're, this guy's never named in Scripture. We're just told it was somebody that was appointed by the churches to travel with Paul and some of his companions to deliver an offering, a monetary offering. And we're told that he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. This is Paul's terminology for a, a, a monetary offering he has received from the churches in Macedonia that he's going to take to Jerusalem to help people there who are impoverished. And he says, this one has, has traveled with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. Here's our term, deacon. For the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good, we will take this course so that no one should, be, should blame us about this generous gift that is being, and here it is again, administered by us. So what is being served in this context? I heard it. What is it? Money. People have a, a physical, financial need, and uh, churches have agreed to help meet that need. And so these people are actually delivering that need, that monetary need, uh, to help people, all right? They're, they're deaconing in that way, okay? All right? What else is served? Well, notice this. Acts chapter 6 and verse 4, we're told this. These are the words of the apostles. They say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the, here's our, our term, ministry of the word. What is being served here? What's being served? The word, what is the word? It's the truth of God's word. It's, it's, it's the Bible. It's the revelation of God to us in the scripture. And here you have the apostles saying, we're going to give ourselves to this deaconing of the word, this, this serving of the word to people. And so if you put these things together, you know, what is being served? 
Well, you have food sometimes, you have money, you have the word, we could look at other things. But basically, it always falls into these categories. What is being served in this way is its physical and spiritual needs. Somebody has a physical need that's being met or, or deaconed to. If somebody has a, a spiritual need, um, it is being met by the word as the word is served. Okay? Well, that brings us thirdly to this question. All right, you with me so far? We need to take a break here. All right. Third question. Who is being served? Who is it that's the recipients of these, of these kinds of service? And, and who are the ones that are benefiting from this kind of service? Well, look at uh, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11 says this. Then the devil left him, and the hymn refers to Jesus. And behold, angels came and were deaconing or ministering to him. Who's the him in this passage? Jesus. Jesus is ministered to in this way. This is at his point of temptation, after his temptation in the wilderness. It says that the angels came and they, they encouraged him. And, and how could you imagine that would have been? Probably both physically and spiritually. Right? Just like we've seen this word in service in other places. Okay, look at this. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who is being served here? Who's being served? Believers, right? Jesus came to serve us, to deacon for us, if you will. And of course, he did so by laying down his life, the ultimate act of service. And that's why Jesus came. He didn't come so that people would serve him and acknowledge him when he was born in Bethlehem. He actually came that he might serve other people. And that he would lay down his life for us. Because we were lost and without hope. We were apart from God and lost in our sin. And unless somebody came and stood in our place and took our penalty, we would remain lost and without hope. The Bible says that the mindset of Jesus Christ was this. He came not so that people would pay attention to his needs, but that he would meet our deepest need. And that was we needed to be ransomed. We needed to be purchased because we were bound in trespasses and sins. And the blood of Jesus Christ paid for us and ransomed us and purchased us. And all who believe in Christ wholly and fully in faith Know what it is to be ransomed. And know what it is to have your sins forgiven. And so here when we look at our term serve, this is what Jesus did. This was his mindset. It was to serve. And he served us. Here's other people who are served. Acts chapter 19. We're told, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, the his here refers to the apostle Paul, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, 
Where do you think our term is in this verse? We've often seen it translated as servant or served. Where do you think it is in this verse? Yeah, I heard it. It's actually right here. Helpers. And here we're told that there were two guys named Timothy and Erastus, and they were deaconing or helping who? The Apostle Paul. Uh, They helped him um, on his missionary journeys. We know that they were close companions with Paul. and, And again, they helped him certainly in those physical and spiritual ways. And that's what they did. And they they served him in those ways. All right, who else has served? Look at Hebrews 6, verse 10. We're told this, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Here's our term translated serving. And who has served? Saints. And who's he talking to? Saints. And what he's saying is, you Hebrew believers, saints, you serve saints, you serve each other. And he says, that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're still doing. And God does not take that lightly. God understands that. In fact, he approves of that. And so who is served? Well, saints are served by each other. And the New Testament uses this term in that way. Finally, let's note this, who is served? Ephesians 4 says this, that there are pastors and teachers given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Here, saints are equipped to do deaconing, ultimately to build up the body of Christ. And who's the body of Christ? It's the church. So saints are equipped to serve in this way that we all might serve each other in this way and and build each other or encourage one another and build each other up. That's who is served. So who is being served? We would say all kinds of people. People's material and physical needs are met, and that's how this word is used in the Bible. So... What does deacon mean? Just by looking at that, we would say to deacon is to serve each other or serve people in both physical and spiritual ways. So I've kind of taken you through that little exercise just to to demonstrate that to you, that this is really how the term is used in the Bible. And remember, that's talking about everybody. All of us are to do this. Serve each other in physical and spiritual ways and encourage each other. So that brings up a question, right? If we are all supposed to do that, and God commends that, then why do we have people specifically that we call deacons? I mean, if everybody should be deaconing and serving in that way, why would you nominate people or or elect people, as it were, to an office and say, okay, here is a servant to minister to physical and spiritual needs. You ever wondered that? I'm really glad you asked that question, okay? Why do we have deacons? Well, look at this passage in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul's writing to believers at Philippi, 
And here we're told that it's Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. By the way, this term here, let me just make a note of this. Uh, This term here, servants, is not our term. Uh, Remember I said there was that other word for, for slave in the Bible? That's actually the word, okay? So Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Uh, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and who? Uh, there's one of those occurrences where deacons occurs in the Bible. And um, here the word is not actually translated. When, when we saw this word in other places, it was translated. It was translated as servant. It was translated as minister. It was translated as helper. Remember those? Here you have that word, what we would call transliterated. And what that means is they try to to take the very letters of that Greek word and bring them to the English language. That's why we have the term deacon, because the Greek word is the term diakonos. You hear the similarity? And so it's a transliteration, and our translators have said, Here, we're not going to translate that as servant or minister, but we're going to transliterate and say this is a deacon. Now, why would they do that? Well, everywhere else we looked, we saw that that servants are people who who serve in various ways, uh, that they serve physically and materially uh, uh, and spiritually. They're serving other all kinds of people. But all the saints do that. So look at this. When Paul is addressing this group of believers in Philippi, he's addressing this to all the saints in Christ Jesus, everybody in that church at Philippi. And then he designates two distinct groups within the group. All those who are at Philippi with the one overseers, who's that? That would be pastors or elders, okay? And there's this group, deacons. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, there's really two offices I'm recognizing as you do in Philippi. You have all the saints, and and Paul would agree, they all serve one another. But among that group, you have these specific groups. You have pastors, elders, overseers, all synonymous terms, and deacons. You have people that are specifically set apart as these servants, these deacons. Does that make sense? So he's kind of identifying, here's a specific group within that context. And so it seems apparent from the New Testament that there really is an idea where you had in these local congregations these two kinds of offices, overseer, pastor, elder, and deacon. And if that didn't convince you in Philippians chapter 1, you're turned to 1 Timothy chapter 3 in your Bible, and this really seals the deal for us, all right? 1 Timothy chapter 3, and first of all, I want you to look down at verse 14, because the book of Timothy is not like other New Testament epistles. Um, for instance, the, the, the book to the Philippians. That is written to the saints at Philippi, the whole church. Timothy's written to an individual, a guy named Timothy. And Paul is writing to him because Timothy was his traveling companion. 
And Timothy, at this point, is likely the pastor of one of those churches that was started by Paul, probably the church at Ephesus. And Paul is writing to Timothy, and here's why he's writing the pastor and not just all the saints. Because here's what he tells Timothy in verse 14 of chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So you tell me, why is Paul writing to Timothy? He's telling them, I'm going to tell you, Timothy, how you should behave in the church, how you should order the church. What needs to happen in this church, the pillar and ground of truth? And when you go through this book and you read it, that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's saying, here's what you do with the older folks. Here's what you do with the younger folks. Here's, here's who should be teaching. Here's who shouldn't. And he goes through all of these things. And right before this, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, he talks about two distinct offices of people within a church. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1 of 1 Timothy. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of what? Overseer. Remember we saw that in Philippians 1? What's an overseer? It's a pastor. It's an elder. And Paul says, if anybody desires this office, it's a noble thing. But then he gives a list of qualifications. Here's what an overseer must be, and he runs from verse 2 all the way down to verse 7, okay? And then in verse 8, he says, deacons likewise. What does he mean by that? Well, here's our term again, deacon, right? But it's transliterated. It's not just translated as servant or minister. It's transliterated as deacons, and our Translators did that because they're saying this is a very specific use of this term to designate an office in the church. These are deacons, selected servants in the church, among the group, out from the group, in order to serve in a specific capacity. And so, to answer the question, if, if we are all to be serving each other and deaconing one another, as it were, why do we specifically have deacons? Because the New Testament clearly designates an office for that. That there are people who serve as deacons out from the group in the congregation. In these two contexts, it identifies that. Okay? And so, is there any other passage missing? We're going to read this passage in a minute. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. Any other passage missing that might talk about deacons? Well, some people, uh, and I would agree, look at Acts. And so I'd like you to turn there. Look at Acts chapter 6. And the reason that there's discrepancy about whether or not this passage actually talks about deacons is because the term isn't found in this passage, that term diakonos. So some people say, well, this, this is before the church is established. It's, it's not really talking about this. Um, I tend to disagree just because of what is taking place here. 
Acts chapter 6, look at verse 1. Uh, we're told, now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. These are all Jewish people. The Hellenists are Jews that have adopted Hellenistic culture or Greek culture. They speak Greek. They, they, they look Greek. And, and yet they've been saved and come to Christ and they're in the church and they're in the church with others that are Hebrews and they're very proud because they've maintained their Hebrew heritage. They speak Hebrew, they practice dietary Hebrew laws and, and, and you have these two groups in the church and when it came to ministering to the widows that had physical need in this congregation, you had uh, a problem that crept up because some people cried favoritism, Right? Um, the Hellenists said these Hebrew widows are getting more than the Greek cultured widows. And there's a complaint. And isn't it interesting that when the church grows, you have a mix of people and suddenly there begins to be complaining and a bit of rubbing each other a little bit. And so look at verse 2. And the twelve, who was that? The apostles, they summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, okay? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. So while the term deacon is not transliterated in this passage, it is translated. At the end of verse 2, it says, we should not give up preaching the word of God to what? Serve tables, to deacon tables. And we've already looked at verse 4. It says, we will commit ourselves to the ministry or deaconing of the word of God. So what's going on here? These seven guys were chosen. Uh, by the way, when you read the names, they chose all Greek guys. I think was very wise, and, and they were going to handle this problem that came up so it wouldn't distract the apostles from their primary ministry, and they served as like a buffer to help uh, squelch uh, unrest and disunity, and I think this is a pattern of deacons in the early church where the early church said we need to recognize people that can help in this regard to help maintain unity in a body and really squelch some unrest by helping meet physical needs of people, and yes, even spiritual needs. And so I think this is a good pattern, but I just want you to be aware, not everybody agrees with me, right? As some people say this has nothing to do with deacons, the term isn't transliterated there. Um, I think they're wrong, but that's okay. Um, I think it does. So let's go back to 1 Timothy 3. So what is a deacon? A deacon in the church is a specific office. It's an office that people are uh, recognized in. I hate to say elected to. It sounds so political. I prefer to say recognized. And I would say these are likely people that are deaconing among the church like all of us should be. But perhaps these are individuals that really kind of rise to the top and really stand out in that category. They're like, 
we say uber deaconing. They're, and, and people are seeing that and they're recognizing these and they're saying we should recognize them in an official capacity that way. And we wish to set them apart even for that kind of a service that they would do that and be recognized that way. And so they have their list of qualifications. First Timothy chapter 3, it's on the screen or you can look in your Bible. We're told that deacons likewise, like those overseers, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus." That's quite a list. When we go through that list, all of those qualifications for deacon can be, it's hard to quantify them. We always like to tend to think in terms of black and white. It's yes or no. And we always strive in our mind to get to that point because it makes us feel more comfortable. But honestly, in these capacities, these are terms that are more nuanced. Okay? It says that someone should not be greedy. Okay, you define for me greedy. And then you tell me when you see it. And typically I say, I know it when I see it because it's the extreme. It's this blatant greed that just comes out. But can someone be greedy and not be as blatant? Is there a nuance to that? And the only reason I mention that is because sometimes we go through this category and we think in those terms, well, yeah, well, this, this one is, this one isn't, this guy is, this guy isn't. And we tend to be very quick in making these, these characterizations. And I think what you have to look at is a, is a person's body of work. What's, what's, the, what's the trajectory of their life? What has the pattern of their life been? says they must be dignified, right? This is somebody that's, that's honorable. Um, they, there's a dignity about them. It doesn't mean that, you know, they suck on lemons all the time and, you know, are dour. But, but they're honorable. They're, they hold a certain amount of dignity. And it, it's, I think it's the kind of thing where it's, it's if you really had a question about something, and really wanted input, you would go to this person. Because there's just something honorable about them. They're not double-tongued. Uh, what does that mean? I think it just means the person's genuine. What they say to your face, they say behind your back. They're not going to tell you one thing and then say something else to somebody else. They're genuine not speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Not addicted to much wine. It just means that they're self-controlled. They're not addicted to anything. 
They're self-controlled. Um, more so, maybe spirit-controlled. We're told that they're not greedy for dishonest gain. I think the best way to understand that is, are they a sacrificial giver? Not someone that's always a taker and always looking for what they can get and how they can spin the thing just right for them, for what they can get out of it. But are they a sacrificial giver? The best way to kill greed in all of us is to be a sacrificial giver. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I think this just means that, that they understand the gospel. They're not a, a new believer they understand the gospel. They've embraced the gospel. I don't think it means that they have to be a seminary professor or you know, uh, um, even a Sunday school teacher. It's just that, that they don't have questions about whether or not the gospel is true. They hold that mystery with clear conscience. They're convinced of it. And probably the idea of mystery here in the context of the first century is that both Jews and Gentiles come into faith in the same way. They come into the church the same way through Christ alone. And Paul's saying, you need to have guys that are, that are really clear on that. Next, we're told, uh, let them be tested first. I think that's the idea of these are people that are deaconing one another. They're doing all those things we saw in other places in the New Testament. And they're tested in that way. We've, we've seen them serve in this way. So let them be tested first. Then let them serve in this office if they prove themselves to be blameless. Now, what is blameless? Is blameless perfect? How do we know blameless isn't perfect? We wouldn't have any deacons. And we wouldn't have any pastors because it's a qualification for an elder or pastor too. It's not perfect. What does it mean, blameless? I've heard it described this way. It's like you have a coffee cup and you put hot liquid in that cup and it's a ceramic mug, but it has no handle on it. You can't grab that mug. It's hot but you put a handle on it so that you have something to grab onto to get a hold of it. Blameless is this idea that somebody has lived in such a way that isn't perfect, but there's no handle on their life that you can grab hold of and say, see this, look at this. This is something that really is an issue. And it's like that hot mug without a handle that there's nothing to grab onto. The idea of blameless. Okay. And the passage goes on, it talks about wives, uh, the wives of the deacons, that they must be dignified. Notice it said that of the deacons back at the top of the passage. They must not be slanderers. They too must be sober-minded and faithful in all things. Why would it talk about deacons' wives? I think really the idea here is that a man who's in this office really has an influence by how he lives, and his greatest influence should be seen in his closest companion, which would be his wife. 
And therefore, as he lives his life, he's actually discipling and influencing her as well. And it shows. And I have been in places and heard of times when that has not been the case. And it really has disqualified a man from serving in this way. Because our wives are a reflection, men, of, of our leadership in our home. And ladies, that also is upon you. You are a reflection of your husband. And we should take that seriously. So wives should be dignified and not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. And we're told, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Um, that's a phrase that gets a lot of attention in this passage. Are you saying that a deacon can never be divorced? Or what is the case? Literally, if you read it, it's a deacon should be a one-woman kind of man. Um, for our understanding among our congregation, admittedly so, we've just kind of taken the high road and said, yeah, it should mean that a man is not then divorced. And I think there are ways other people, good Bible-believing people, don't hold that position, and that's, that's fine. I understand where they're coming from. Um, because literally the passage says, I'm a one-woman kind of man, so maybe a man was married before and divorced, and then he came to Christ and remarried, and now he is committed to that woman. What happens there? I understand that. I'm even somewhat sympathetic to that. But for our sake in our congregation and among our leadership, we've said it would just be somebody who's never had that in their past and experienced a divorce. It doesn't mean people who divorced are second-class citizens. If, if you hold that view and you think about it in the church, there's only two things that God says where, where that would affect someone's service, pastor and deacon. Everything else is open, right? So let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Boy, that's a big one, isn't it? I mean, who here like has kids and every single day says, that's me, right? Well, not when I go to the restaurant, right? And then we're sitting there waiting on our food, and what are those kids doing, right? Um, again, this is the idea of, of children. When it, it, talks, it uses the term children, and it's speaking of children that are under your roof, dependents. And when it means that they're, they're managing their households well, it means that those children are controlled and at least responsive to their parents' instruction. Now, that's not true all the time because all of our kids are in a work in progress and we as parents are a work in progress. But again, the general trajectory of life is this, working toward managing our children where they're responsive to our voices, listen to our instruction, and they, they themselves are learning to be self-controlled. And that's the idea. Then he says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So this is the specific office that is before us tonight. We are to examine and think of Men from our congregation that would be able to fulfill this responsibility and match these requirements as given us in Scripture. And so tonight, uh, if you are a voting member of our congregation, you are a member of our church, uh, in a moment we're going to hand to you a little uh, piece of paper 
And uh, on that piece of paper, uh, it actually says, I've got mine right here, and it says, please list two names for the office of deacon.